reading through Romans, the more and more I read through Romans, the more and more convinced that there's no way a man wrote the Bible uh, at all. Uh, Charles Wesley says that if a man could write the Bible, he never would. And if he would, he never could. Because it screams of the glory of God, not man. Right? Uh, uh, it's God's telling a great story. He's the only hero in it, and it's his story. Um, and he defines us in our natural state from birth as uh, rebellious, as sinners, as enemies, as ungodly, unlovable, um, all of these things, and powerless to change our position. We can't do anything to change where we are and where God sees us from birth. But God, in his grace and his mercy and his love, rescues us out of that position. Uh, we've been talking about this mind-boggling doctrine of, of justification and what that means now uh, because it means that God declares us not guilty, not because we're innocent, but because the wrath, the punishment for our sin was poured out on Jesus instead of us. So he absorbs it. We get all of the benefits. Um, God definitely deals with sin. He doesn't dust it under the rug. He dealt with it on the cross. Uh, so uh, when I was 17, me and some buddies, uh, we got together, it, being dumb as we were, and uh, we went out and got some beer, and we were going to go to the club. And um, I was, since I was under the age, um, man, that was sinful. I wasn't obeying civil law. Uh, so that was me. Love that grace, right? So uh, uh, we go get some Miller Lite uh, minis. All right, we're, we're, we're not beer snobs, okay? So uh, we go get these things, and then um, after sitting in the parking lot in my car riding some 7.5-ounce ponies, uh, the security officer comes up and knocks on the car window and looks in there. And then, you know, obviously he, he's not happy with what's going on. So he takes me, and he escorts me and my friend to this office that was at the club, the place of the security. So brings me in there, says, I'm calling your dad. Uh, they call my dad. He comes down there, and, uh, and, and they, they talk a little bit. I'm just kind of sitting there quietly. I don't really know what the reaction. I probably should have been very scared at this point, uh, but the liquid courage was kicking in, so it really didn't feel the, the weight of that. So, uh, so we get in the car to leave. All right, we get in the car. We go home. My dad says nothing about it, nothing. He just like dusted under the rug completely, never even mentions it, never brings it up, doesn't say anything about it. I'm like, this is awesome. Uh, this is incredible. Uh, he didn't even say anything, right? Uh, God never does that, ever, right? He, he deals with our sin. Uh, that's why we call the, the, the very first installment of this entire Roman study was the beautiful collision because the wrath of God, the punishment that we deserve God poured it out on Jesus on the cross. And that was the intersection of God's wrath and his grace. So he didn't overlook our sin. He didn't dust it under the rug. He didn't look favorably upon us. He poured it out on Jesus. All right, and that's, a, that's why we called it a beautiful collision. Uh, well, the second, second installment of Romans, is we're calling this the glorious exchange, because this truth uh, of justification by, by grace through faith, all right, not works. I want to make sure that's really clear. Uh, we're not justified by works. It's by grace through faith. We're understanding that when we get to exchange 
uh, our justification for condemnation, or condemnation for justification. I'm going to get that right. Uh, we get to change us being um, enemies of God to being children of God, from being unlovable to being unconditionally loved by God, for being at war with God, for being at peace with God. All of these things are a glorious exchange that we get to make when we put our trust in Christ and we're justified by grace through faith. So that's what we've been in. If you've got your books out, your Bible, stud up, get it to uh, Romans 5. Uh, we're going to be in uh, 12 through 21 today. Let's get in there because here's what he's going to lay out this, this, uh, in this text today. Um, is another benefit of justification. Theologically, there's a word that we're revealing today, and it's called imputation. All right, uh, we don't steer away from theological words in here uh, because we're not trying to produce remedial Christians. Uh, we want to go deeper because going deeper into your faith is going to make you love God more. To be, He will look more glorious. So theology, all right, which by the way is the study of God. All right, that is not for pastors only, not for uh, theologians, not for students of the Bible. It's for all people to study God. All right, that's what we all need to be doing. But studying God, studying the theology of God, puts strength in the fiber of our spines and our faith. All right, that's what gives us root. Uh, because rootless Christians won't survive the days ahead. So we need to be studying God to know God more, so we love God more. It's about Studying him is to, is to puff him up, not us. So we don't study to be like, oh, I know a lot of things about God. It's to study to say, God, you are amazing. You're way more amazing than I thought you were because I'm studying about you. And then we live out those implications. So uh, let's get into the text today. Um, imputation, since this is where we're going to zoom in on, there's a lot of technical nuances in this text. It's heavy. I'm telling you right now, it's very heavy. I had to read it several times to understand fully to grasp it. We're going to zero in on this word imputation. Imputation means that something is reckoned or given to you. All right? Amputation is when you lose something. Imputation is that you get something. So Romans 5, 12 through 21 gives us the clearest description of imputation. All right? Uh, uh, we're going to unpack. We've already kind of seen the text kind of laying out these comparisons between two men. Right now, we don't have names in there, but here's what we're looking at is the comparison between Adam, all right, who is the, the, father, uh, the, the, uh, the father of all humanity. We're all born into being descendants of Adam, so we're born into this. He's the first father of all humanity, Adam. And then we're going to look at Jesus Christ, who is also called the last or the ultimate or the second Adam. All right, so we're going to see a lot of parenthetical statements between Adam and Christ, but we're also going to see a lot of contrast in the two and the implications of their acts. There's one act by Adam and there's one act by Christ. They have distinctively different implications. So as we're reading the text today, uh, we need to keep things in mind because we're going to, Christ will be referred to as man in the text. He was fully God but he was also fully man. All right, That's a divine mystery of how he can be all of that at, at one thing, but he is, and that's the truth. He's fully God, but he's also fully man. So let's look at this text. 
Let's open it up and look at the comparisons between, because they both have impacted the world, um, and, and they both represent a lot of men, all right? They're going to represent all of this, and that's kind of where our bottom line is, is, is one for all. You, that'll make more sense as we kind of get in here in a second. So let's pray before we get in. God, we love you for your uh, rich uh, biblical truths that you are teaching in the scriptures. God, we love the, the language to which you're using because it challenges us to use our brains. The brains that you have given us to understand, to go deeper. Father, I, I pray as a, as a pastor of your church that uh, we don't coddle people, we challenge them. We don't lower the bar, but we raise the bar. Do that in us today so we can look back on it and say, I love you more than I did yesterday, and I will love you more tomorrow than I did today. We love you. Would you teach us this morning in Christ's name? Amen. All right, Romans 5, 12 through 21. We'll break this up. Here we go. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin... And so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So what we're going to do first is we're going to exhaust Adam. Because this idea, this, con- this concept of imputation, Adam has imputed to all of us two things. He's imputed sin, and he's imputed death upon all of us. That's what the text just read. Those two things Adam gives, and we're going to look at what Christ does in just a second. But let's look at the implications of what that means. Going back to uh, the beginning of creation is where Paul's taking us. Back to the garden where Adam... And Eve, we're in the garden, and God said, don't eat of the tree, because when you do, you will surely die. When, that's a key word, God didn't say if, he said when, that's too many, or too deep to go into right now, but that's important. He says, when you eat of it, you will surely die, spiritually, and eventually physically, you will die. What did Adam do? Adam ate, of course. He ate the fruit, and just as God told him would happen is he was spiritually dead. He was separated from God. He was cast out of the garden, no longer in the presence of God. He eventually would suffer physical death, but not immediate. All right, that's the implication. So because Adam was the first father of humanity, and we are all descendants of Adam, he's the father of humanity, we have inherited his sin nature. He imputed it to all of us. This is what's wrong with you. This is is what's wrong with the entire world that we live in today. It is sin, and this is its origination right here. He imputed it. It's in here. We're all sinners in Adam. This is the way we're born into the world. Uh, We see that quickly through the lineage of Adam and Eve, right? We see that go to Cain, to Abel. What does Cain do? He kills Abel, right? Do you think Adam and Eve taught him how to kill? Absolutely not. It was in his nature from birth because his father, Adam, imputed it to him. All right? Now, here's what I want you to know. When this sin nature took root, Psalm 51.5 says that it's in us at the moment of conception. All right? 
before we breathed a breath into the world at conception, we had this sin nature. So if you take that truth, life begins at conception, not at birth. If we have a nature of sin at conception, that means we have life. All right, so life begins in the womb at conception, not after. All right, so uh, here, this is the reason we're warped. This is the reason we are bent towards us and not God from birth. So we have today uh, about 100 preschoolers and kids combined on campus between both services, okay? So I, I'm confident in telling you today that some of those kids right now are being disobedient, all right? They are rebelling right now, all right? It's in their nature from birth to, to rebel against authority, all right? A, authority of God, authority of parents, whatever. It's in their nature to do so. Uh, those, they're as precious as they are, as, as loving as they are, and, you know, Graham Graham says they're perfect and all those things. They're born warped, okay? Uh, now, some of you are like, no, not my kid. Yes, your kid. All right. Some of you are like, yeah, my kid, I know it. That's why I dumped him off on y'all this morning. Right. Uh, but, but the point is, the point is, is that by nature, it is in us. We are unable to be uh, to under under the authority of God. We rebel against God. We don't love God. We do not come out of the womb saying, God, where are you? I want to worship you. I'm longing for you because of Adam's imputed sin. We cannot do that. All right, so moms, when you take your kids to Walmart, your babies, they go through Walmart, and they got all that candy up there at the aisle when you're checking out, and they're screaming and yelling, and they want to scream no, and they want to push you and all that stuff. That's why they do that. That's why it's in them. They're a sinful nature. They don't want to be obedient. They don't look at you and say, Mom, I really want to honor God today. I don't think I'm going to scream. All right? When, they, uh, when you tell them they can't have a happy meal at McDonald's, they scream like crazy. They rebel. They don't say, I want to honor the scriptures. And the scriptures say I'm supposed to honor my mother and my father. They don't do that. We don't do that because in our nature at its core, we are rebellious. And that is exactly where it came from. So you want to know what's wrong with the world? What's wrong with all the people in the world? That's it right there. Adam imputed sin upon us. Now, you may think that's not fair, all right? He's our rep. He's representing us at this point in Scripture. He's the father of humanity, and he imputed it to us, and you couldn't do anything about it. Now, here's what I do want to let you know. You can't take a position of being a victim either. You can't sit back and say, whoa, man, I'm a victim of all this sin. Right? You partook in it. Scriptures say that you loved it, you embraced it, and you, 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 you revel it up in that sin. You love it. We all do that, okay? Because it's in our nature, our environments, our upbringing, our parents, or lack of parents, all the sin in the world did not make us the way we are. You need to understand that. This is why you and I cannot look back upon our childhood and say, well, I'm sinning right now because my dad didn't love me, because my mom didn't hug me enough. My parents, they were drug abusers. They never loved me, so then I'm a drug abuser, and I'm going to sin against God too. You cannot use that excuse. Your environment, your upbringing, those things can fan the flame of sin, but it's already started. The fire is already burnt, burning inside of you from nature to be rebellious against God. 
All right, so the good part about that, here's the good part, that no matter what your story is or where you're at today, no matter what sin you are either a, a, uh, a perpetrator or a victim of in your life, by your hands or someone else's hands, Jesus is stronger than your sin. He can overcome anything in your life. You can't look back and say, well, I'm just going to be this way the rest of my life because my dad beat me and I did drugs and I've done this and that. I'm a victim, victim, victim. Jesus says, no, I'm greater than all of those things. My power is stronger over sin. Do not let those things define you. He is greater than all of those things. All right, that's great news. Okay, so uh, let's keep going. So some people, here's what we do. Uh, Adam means Adam means mankind. That's the definition of the word Adam. means mankind. It means Adam represented all of humanity. All right, and we don't like that because we like individualism in our culture. We like to be the ones. Why did he have to rep me? I like being the way that I am. Let me tell you what. It's called representation, and that's just life. All right, so let me, let me show you how that plays out. So uh, the, the Titans, man, one guy jumps, jumps off sides or gets a penalty in a game, which that's going to happen quite often. The whole team is penalized for it, right? All for one, all right? Yeah, the President of the United States, whether you voted for him or not, whether he makes decisions that you agree with or you disagree with, he is representing all of us, like it or not. That's what happens with representation, all right? So some people will say, they look back at Adam and Eve in the garden. They're like, man, Adam, man, he's so stupid. That guy, God specifically told him, don't eat of that fruit, and he did it anyway. I would have never done that, right? That's crazy. We can't, uh, a man can't look at a woman without lusting like a, a rabid dog for five minutes, foaming at the mouth. And you think you could have done better than Adam? Absolutely not. You're fallen creatures. We are fallen creatures. Adam was just the man who God wanted to represent all of humanity. And you might be saying, well, he failed. Why, why, why would God want him to rep? I'll get to that in just a moment. Um, it's kind of a head scratcher, but here's, here's kind of what happened. Um, Augustine fought for this imputed sin. He, he, he fought a, a lot of other theologians that said because of imputed sin, here's what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve. They, before the fall, here's three choices that they had that we no longer have. They had the ability to die or not die. Okay? God said you, you would surely die. They could live forever in the garden. Forever. Never physically die. Never spiritually die. But they chose death. Alright? We don't have that choice. Do we? We're going to die. Alright? We do not have that choice. They also had the ability to choose God or to be like God. They had that option, right? And what did Adam choose? To be like God. So by his sin, his one act imputed to us, we no longer can choose God from birth. We don't have the ability. The sin corrupts us and warps us from wanting to choose God. Romans, all throughout Romans, just constantly tell us that no one seeks after God, that no one does good, no one understands God. It's because of sin's corruption, and it came from Adam. All right? So that, that, was, the, that was the implications of that. They, they couldn't die. They, had, they could choose God. We cannot do that anymore. Adam and Eve were really the last two 
to have complete free will. And it's in its utter utter form, its complete form, they were the last ones to have free will. Now we have choices. We have choices every day that we make, right? Individual choices. But what that means is, and we say that we can't seek after God, it means that sin has warped our minds, our will, our heart so much that we do not come out of the womb seeking to please God, and we have no ability to do that, all right? As a matter of fact, Ephesians goes as far as saying that we are dead people, all right? That's what it calls us, dry bones, dead people. That's what we're called by Paul in Ephesians. We're dead people who have no ability to call ourselves to life. There's a, a, a pastor who, of preachers. He teaches students how to be preachers. And what he did is he gathered them all up one day, and he took them out to the cemetery and got them all around. He says, all right, here's what I want you to do. I want you to preach to the graves. I want you to call dry bones to life. I want, you to, I want you to raise these people from the dead. Call them out. Get them to raise up from the dead. All right? And they all looked at him like Vince Young looks at a second grade math book. All right? That's good. Still using that one. So they all look at him like that and they just cannot comprehend. They cannot figure out. So what do they do? They go and do it because they know it's not going to happen. And the pastor says, that's exactly what happens when you preach. No matter how eloquent, eloquent you are, no matter how loud you are, no matter how long you speak, you will never raise people from the dead. It is the power of the Holy Spirit, God himself, that calls people to life. He calls. He, he calls you to wake like he did Lazarus. Rise from the dead. What did Lazarus do? He rose from the dead. Not because Lazarus could do it, but because God could do it in him. That's a picture of our salvation. God calls us to life, and then we respond. Okay, God, I, I get it now. I'm responding to you. I choose you now because you've chosen me. You woke me up. Now, see, that has got to impact the way that you evangelize to people outside these walls. And I pray that you are evangelizing to people outside these walls when you go share christ to a friend and they say i want christ and they get saved you look back and you say god you are amazing you saved my friend if they reject god wasn't god's will right not you he gets all the glory all the praise it helps me be free from from any kind of pressure or fear of what the response might be because God is calling the dry bones to life, not me. So I just share. Obedience is our, is our concern, not the results of it. So it should impact the way that we do evangelistic preaching about the gospel. So um, here's what I want you to know. This imputed sin uh, brought three levels of death. All right, We saw immediate spiritual separation from God, and then it had brought the eventual physical if, if not for sin, Adam and Eve would all would have existed and never died, but that didn't happen. Uh, what I want to talk about um, is the spiritual death, all right? That's the main thing that really impacts us on the level of where we kind of live. So let me bring this on the ground, and the effects of spiritual death. Uh, because of the spiritual death, we come out, we have no ability to please God, to worship God, to serve God, to love God. It is not in us from conception. We can't do that. Let me get that down to a 
a more personal level because everywhere death is, there's always the stench of death, right? You know what I'm talking about. If you've ever actually physically smelled death, there's a stench of death. Well, with holistic spiritual death, there's also a stench of death. And here's what it looks like. A man, a, a husband, a father who is more intrigued by fantasy than reality. And he goes home and he can't engage his wife or his kids because fantasy is more intriguing to him. And I will show you the stench of death. Show me a woman who feels so insecure about herself that she would talk about other women to make herself feel better. And I will show you the stench of sin's death. A man who loves his job, his money, his car, his possessions, his house more than he loves Jesus. And I will show you the stench of sin's death. A failed marriage or failing marriage. The stench of sin's death. Same-sex attraction, stench of sin's death. All of those things in the world, we don't have marriage problem, we don't have homosexuality problem, we don't have divorce problem, we don't have abuse problem, we have a sin problem. And it starts at the root because it was imputed to us. It is the universal problem with all of us. So when I'm, I'm counseling people through the week, when you are maybe talking to a friend about their problems and their marriage and their, their addiction to pornography or lust and pride and whatever it is, when I know what the issue is, I know how to talk to them. If they're lost and they do not know Christ, I'm sharing the gospel because the gospel is the cure. So when I know that sin is the issue, I know what the cure is. And then they're equipped with the aroma of the gospel in their life, and they can fight sin, all right? But if it's someone who doesn't know Christ, I don't tell them to go get a good book down at Barnes & Noble or to go watch a lot of episodes of Dr. Oz to fix your life because the core issue is the sin, and it has not been dealt with in your life. It helps us to preach to people. When you have friends, you need to know where they stand in their position with Christ. Has their sin been accounted for or is it not? That lets you know how to talk to people, how to share the gospel with people, how to give counsel to people. All right? Uh, so this, this immediate effect gives us the, uh, we, don't, we don't have the ability to do moral good. All right? We're warped. We can't do good things. Now here's what I want you to know when I say that. I'm talking about moral good and not relative good. Relative good, it's all over the place. So the, the, uh, the, the non-Christian, the Buddhist, uh, the Muslim, the good Samaritan, right? They could do a lot of good works. Serving the homeless, giving blood at Red Cross, donating clothes to Goodwill. All of those things, if they're not done in faith, the Scripture calls them sin, right? We call it humble bragging. Where we get the glory, we get the praise, we get the honor, and God does not. Even if you do those things to impress God, it is still sin. We have no ability to please God and to worship God from our sinful nature, from our standard. We cannot do those things. So in this effects of death, um, here's what I want you to know. It, it is real. And, uh, man, it is the cure, it is the, it is the disease that needs the cure of the gospel. So in verse 13, um, here's what I want you to know about this death. Let's look at 13 again. 
And he says, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. So let me tell you what's going on here. So he's saying sin was in, in the world before the law was given by Moses. So from Adam to Moses, there was no law. There was no commandments. There was no standard of which they were to meet. But it says sin was in the world. It still reigned in the world. All right. So if it existed, now it says that it's not counted where there is no law. So what that says, everyone from Adam to Moses, their individual sin, personal sins, not like, not like Adam's, right? It manifested itself in all kind of crazy ways. Adam just ate of the fruit. Everybody else started warping and, and going. Although our sin was different, all of those individual sins were not counted against us. All right? Does that make sense? But look where he, look where he tells us the position of all men were. 14. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. He said death still reigned. Why would all of those people from Adam to Moses suffer death if they didn't know what the law was? Because Adam's sin was imputed to them. They had no choice. It was in them. All sinned in Adam. That's what Romans says. We all sinned in him. All right? This is why that, uh, that, that in, uh, in the Kenya, a tribe in Kenya who's never heard of the gospel are guilty. The law has been written on their hearts and sin has been imputed to them just like it did us. All right? All men are guilty apart from the law or not. All right? So that, that's a different position that we need to understand um, in that text, because that's some heavy stuff. So this imputation that, that Adam has given us, now it leads to amputation from God. Severed, cut off, no ability. So Paul's giving us more bad news, right? Which is not a big shocker. If you've been walking through Romans, he's continuous to lay us out. But good news always invades bad spaces. All right, and he's going to tell us this glorious exchange. Now we get to have, through Christ... One act of Christ, how it counteracts one act of Adam. Here's what I want you to know, because looking at the picture in Scripture, one could sit back and say, okay, well, Adam threw a curveball to God, and he didn't know what to do, so then, oh, he reacted by giving Jesus, right? Here's what I'm going to tell you something, an amazing truth to rest in this morning. God is sovereign. That means he is over history, time, humanity, everything in it, and nothing happens outside of his authority or his knowledge. Revelations 31.3 says this. It says, before the foundation of the world, before Adam even existed, there was a book called the Book of Life of the Lamb who was slain. And in it contained the names of the redeemed, the ones that Jesus paid for on the cross before Adam. The book. The lamb who was slain. Put those together. Jesus was plan A. He wasn't plan B. God wasn't reacting to Adam. He served God's purposes. That's heavy stuff. That should make you say, my name? And if I'm in Jesus, was written in the book of life? Before I breathed my breath, before Adam even sinned, wow, God, I love you more. That is an incredible truth. 
That's a truth that should say, I want to lay down my casual Christianity that exists on Sundays. I want to live it out with my life. He is really worthy of all of my days of praise, every bit of it. That's the reality when you hear a text like that. It is incredible. Jesus fulfilled God's eternal purposes. He was at the beginning, right? Let us make man in our image. He was already there, all right? Let's pick up the text and keep going. But the free gift, this is Jesus, quite different. Here comes the the differences, the contrast in Adam. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So here's what he's setting up. There were a lot of comparisons. He's saying the act of Jesus, right, is so infinitely greater. It's much more have the grace. He's setting up that this is not like Adam. This is a superior impactful act by Jesus. One act of Jesus, one act of Adam. And it is not to be compared. It is infinitely more supreme than Adam's. And hear what he says in 16. Let's get going. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So here's this glorious exchange that you get. You get to exchange the condemnation from Adam to justification through Christ. Here's why it's greater. All right, Adam's act was one specific sin. He did one act of disobedience. Jesus, one act of obedience, for, fulfilled the forgiveness of sins for all who would believe and all of their sins, not just one. So your past, your present, your future sins were paid for on the cross. Do you realize that? Do you live in that certainty that if you stumble today and you mess up today and you fall short next week, you can never become more righteous than when Jesus imputes his righteousness to you? You still strive for holy living, but your position of righteousness with God never changes. The result of that is not getting drunk on grace, right? It's, wow, you paid for all of that. I want to lay down my life for you now. I want to strive to kill the sin in my life even more, not live in it more, but to kill it. That's what he's saying. It's supremely different than Adam's act, all right? So here we go in 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through, what, through that one man, much more will be those who receive the abundance of grace. And the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. The glorious exchange, you get to exchange the death that Adam brought you to life in Christ. Not just physical life, not, not eternal life, but life everlasting. The life that Jesus died for you to have. Right? The life that he intended for you to have. The fullness of joy that far surpasses your circumstances. Right? Christians have sufferings and pain, but that joy because you have life everlasting in Christ. 
All right? So let's wrap up. And this, this is really a synopsis in 18 through 21 of what we've just covered. Therefore, as, one, as one's trespasses led to condemnation for all men, so that one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by that one man's disobedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's saying that Adam's one act of disobedience, he disobeyed God. And Christ, one act of obedience, brought eternal life. What was Christ being obedient to? He was being obedient to the law. All right? The law was given, and the text just read, the law was given to, to show the trespass, to sh- increase the level of which we've offended God. The law was given to show God's character, His standard of perfection that we would never, ever meet on our own. It's like He dangled a carrot out there says, This is my character. This is my standard of perfection. You're never going to ever get there on your own. You'll always fall woefully short today, tomorrow, and the next day. You're never going to get there. But Jesus did. Jesus came to fulfill that law. All ten of them, man. All of it its entirety. Perfect. Never sin one time. So you could say that your salvation is based upon a work. Not your work, but the work of Christ on the cross. He fulfilled the law. He imputed obedience to you. Because you and I were going to be disobedient to the law our whole lives. And he says, I'll be obedient to the law. I'm the only one that can. And by the way, that's the standard you've got to meet before you stand before God. He's, you, have to have, you have to be per- perfection. You have to have a standard of perfection before you get to God. And Jesus said, I'll do it for you. Take your place. I'll be obedient so you can be obedient in me. Here's the, the, the incredible, incredible exchange we've looked at all through this. Is that on the day of judgment, okay, Adam or Jesus are going to represent all men. The guys are going to come up and we're going to get into celebration mode here. But Adam and Eve, I'm sorry, Adam and Jesus are going to represent all of us at some point when we stand before God in judgment. Now, some people like to think that they're going to represent themselves. That you're going to stand before God and try to give a defense for your actions, your life. You're going to represent myself. I don't need a defense. I'll be my own defense when I stand before God. I did more good than she did. I didn't murder. I didn't steal. I didn't commit adultery. I never cheated on my wife. Here's what I want you to know if you try to rep yourself before God. You won't even get a word out. He will snap your mouth shut before anything because he sees you. He says, you can't even represent yourself. And he's going to say, bow, because every knee will bow in this life or the next. It's better to do it in this life. And he says, you bow, and then I'm, I'm casting you away. You're separated from me forever. So the reality of Scripture says that we have two representatives, Adam or Jesus. If Adam's repping you, 
you're also in trouble. Because Adam, here's what he's going to do if he's your defense counsel. He's going to run and he's going to hide just like he did in the, in the garden. Shame, guilt, imputed, uh, imputed sin upon you. He cannot rep you. If he reps you, you're in sin. God sees Adam, you're done. You can't even get a word out, Adam. There's no defense. You're gone. If Jesus is representing you, he says, righteous, justified, godly, lovable, powerful, all of those things, when Jesus is representing you, will you reign in life with Jesus or death through Adam? You've got to ask yourself that question today. Man, if you, uh, if you know without a doubt that Jesus is not representing you, you've always put your faith in your own works to get to God. He's your rep right now. And if you want to change your position and you want to experience a glorious exchange, come talk to somebody in the back and they'll tell you how to get Jesus to take your place, to be your substitute when you stand before God. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you so much for laying out a clear picture of two men in human history. Adam and Jesus, who have distinctively different impacts on the world. Adam chose to be his own God in the garden. But your son Jesus prayed for your will to be done in the garden of Gethsemane. So different. Thank you for entering into human history timeline of all of humanity to break the lineage and the curse of sin to provide a way out for pouring it out on your son Jesus instead of us our reaction is to submit, surrender fall on our face and worship you I pray our people do that Father I also pray today if you're stirring up anyone in the room who questions their salvation, questions their eternal destiny, questions who's representing them today before you. I pray that you would move them, not my words, but you. You would move them to a position of obedience. We love you. We pray these things in Christ's name.